And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Bootleg Captain, Captain Bootlegs here. Yeah. If you're like me, I bet you're enjoying this Toys, Toys on, on Tap, Tap podcast. Yeah, I am enjoying it, it's very nice. But did you know you can enjoy it more just by joining that Patreon? Oh, I did not know that. There are so many cool perks available on the Patreon for you. There's and also and Wow, that's really a lot of stuff if you ask Bootleg Captain. Captain I don't bootleg. understand. There were noises I couldn't hear with the person. So join today to support Toys on Tap podcast and Bootleg Art Toys. But if you're not in a position to join the Patreon, head on over to Apple iTunes and review and subscribe. That helps out the channel as well. Okay, I'll go rate it, I guess. And remember, listen to Toys, Toys on, on Tap. Captain Bootleg, the bootleg captain sent you. Why does he keep referring to himself in the third Can person? I stop with the stupid voice now? I'm not sure why you made me want to sound like a pirate. Oh, so that was a fake voice. Oh, yucko! I didn't realize it was just pretend voice. Oh, okay. Welcome back. This is Understanding Bootlegs Part 3. I think before we start anything, if you remember last week's episode, it was about House of Mouse and all the stuff Disney. This is how crazy the Disney-like AI bots are. I couldn't, I would download the soundbite of Mickey saying, oh boy, and every time I would put it into the software, the editing, it would not play. It would not paste. It would not. I had to find a bootleg version of Mickey saying that. That's how bad this is. With that. oh yeah, the like like I mean I even mentioned that like Disney Plus is the front end of a a much larger sort of AI apparatus that is meant to probably hunt, hunt down and kill like digital copies of unsanctioned and unauthorized like Disney media on the internet. Um, yeah. So like the master control program in Tron, it's kind of ironic that the villain in Tron, which was a Disney film, is this like supercomputer. Because that's my theory. That's my conspiracy theory about Disney Plus. <laughs> Eventually it will become um it will become sentient and uh it will force us all to worship it at some like giant altar shaped like Mickey. All right, I'm in, I guess. I guess we can either be the underground or the rebellion. But we maybe are... it's even Walt Disney's consciousness, like oh, the dream in the internet. <laughs> well, we are headed down Star Wars territory this week. Uh, yes, we are. Yeah. So this episode um, I called, I have a couple of names for it because it's fun. So um, I wanted to call it War in the Stars. And then I realized, oh, there's an Italian movie that's a, like kind of a rip off of Star Wars called that. And then I was like, what about Battle in the Stars? I'm like, nope. And so um, our good friend, your friend and mine, Chicken Burger Disco, uh, has this fun terminology that he likes to use generically for uh, like Star Wars or science fiction toys called space battle toys. A minute. And so let's call it like space battle toys because we will talk about where toys will return to the conversation uh, in sort of a big way today. Um, yeah, so this is all things Star Wars, right? So this is the the story of a plucky, young, rebellious, independent filmmaker who eventually um becomes a uh, uh you know disheveled shriveled old man in a black robe running an evil empire so the story is not just <laughs> credit to uh chicken burger disco we were talking about that before um the episode today he's like that story you told about disney is like the story of star wars and i'm like 
you it's like you're reading my mind i'm preparing for this episode as we're having this conversation so again you know sort of independent origins and an independent spirit that becomes what like the most influential popular culture franchise of the 20th and maybe even the 21st century maybe mm -hmm. um and, and <laughs> i can even uh share my first image if i can find it here where is it there it is. So I'll show you this. Um, so uh, one of the things, uh, uh, faithful and dutiful listeners, um, that you may have noticed with that oh boy Mickey Mouse thing that Abe was talking about is that we're indexing images that I'm showing to Abe while we record on the Toys on Tap Instagram. So when you hear R2D2 beep this episode, you know it's time to go over to the Instagram and turn the page and look at the next image in the sequence. Um, and the first <laughs> image that I wanted to use, you're gonna think maybe is a little, my evidence for Star Wars being the most- Oh um, my gosh. <laughs> the most influential pop culture franchise in the known galaxy. Um, I'm showing a picture of Ronald Reagan on Star Wars. And uh, when I was thinking about this, you know, I was like, is it hyperbolic to say that about Star Wars? Like, because I'm going to be talking, because I'm going to be talking about, you know, a whole bunch of spheres of influence that this franchise has inspired that is relevant to us as toy makers and sort of enthusiasts in this idea of like appropriation in the culture of copying that we've been talking about. And I was like, well, is it hyperbolic? And then I was like, well, it's the only movie that I know that inspired Ronald Reagan to name a theoretical space weapon platform after it. Um, and it's the only franchise I know in addition to that, that has its, home, its own home decor line that includes crock pots. Um, so when I was out one day uh, at one of those like awful big box stores that I find myself in on rare occasion, um, in the like the home kitcheny home section, like right on the end cap was like a stormtrooper themed crockpot among a whole lot of other um, like items that were branded with Star Wars, right? So at this point, it's not even a media property. It's like this all consuming lifestyle brand where like literally, like I'm pretty sure that every normal household object you have could probably also have some sort of Star Wars branding on it. And I don't know, I don't know how, um, how true that is about other franchises. So the image that I'm showing uh, right now to Abe, uh, for those of you who are listening, um, is the issue of Time Magazine from April 4th, 1983, uh, with Ronald Reagan on it, uh, talking about nuclear defense capability and Star Wars. And I'm just gonna scroll here. And here's the second picture. Here's him actually showing um, what the Star Wars space weapon platform would look like. And did I download the other one? Yeah, and here's what it, here's an actual graphic from 1983 of how the, the it's a ground-based laser system that fires to a mirror that then gets relayed to another mirror that then aims that laser at incoming nuclear weapons from the Soviet Union. Sounds like, more like Spaceballs rather than Star Wars. Yeah, have you ever seen Spies Like Us? Yeah. Yeah, so it's the, the entire part of the entire premise of Spies Like Us is that a bunch of like senior brass in the intelligence and military service are actually trying to start World War III so they can prove that their Star Wars space laser system actually works. 
and then it doesn't work. Um, yeah, so that's that is my favorite Chevy Chase Dan Aykroyd movie, by the way. Um, so this is where we start, right? This like if we're talking about something that has spheres of influence, like it's its tendrils are kind of everywhere in culture. It's hard to avoid it. I mean, I've heard reviews of Dune that are like, it's a boy in the desert and he saves the universe and stuff. And I'm like, well, it's more, you know, it's it's more than just the hero's journey or whatever with Dune. But I mean, the similarities are also, you know, striking, which means that like, there's an element maybe of like Tatooine that is supposed to be Dune. It has sandworms called crate dragons that were part of the original mythology um, that Lucas was creating. And so I wanted to start in the same way that we sort of started with the Disney stuff, which is to say that here is this plucky young independent person, a director who had done a couple of films, like some of which are like pretty remarkable prior to Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. Like American Graffiti is sort of a snapshot of American culture in the 1970s, looking back in the 1950s. Like, you know, th that film was a sort of important part facet of like, the history of like American cinema and looking at Americana through that lens. Yeah, for sure. Um, for me, I would say for my money, THX 1138 is still the best film that George Lucas has ever made. Okay. Um, I haven't seen it. Particularly like the Criterion edition that was like fully restored. And, you know, it, I think it's a really like conceptually, it's very interesting. It's, you know, it's kind of got that a too slow experimental pacing of other science fiction of the time, like Logan's Run and some other stuff like that. But for my money, THX is like, is Lucas's sci-fi opus, probably more than Star Wars, right? Like, um, it's the meat and potatoes where like Star Wars is the potato chips, mm -hmm. um, you know? And so like nobody nobody at me for, for anything that I say that's critical of Star <laughs> Wars today, please. Or do, because that might just be fun. Um, you know, and so, so Lucas is working in Hollywood. He's doing this kind of unique work, right? He like, like there's his, his peers from film school are this remarkable alumni, like, of like Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola, um, you know, all of whom are doing, I think, really interesting work around that time. This is like, you know, there's a, there is a story about how like Lucas almost directed Apocalypse Now, you know, and these, the, the, all of this stuff has been covered, you know, biographers, fans, whatever, um, that sort of period of time, right? But collectively, there are also these, like, both between, between Spielberg and Lucas and Ford Coppola, most people credit Spielberg with this. So, so you know, this, this particular sort of, like, cohort of filmmakers that emerges in the 70s in Hollywood is also credited for creating what we consider to be, like, contemporary blockbuster cinema, right? Like Jaws is sort of the, an example that most people use is like, this is the moment where we got the summer blockbuster spectacle film. Mm -hmm. like that's the moment is with Jaws. Um, Jaws is also one of my favorite movies. I just, um, I'm, I'm in love with that film. Um, I've never seen that one either. Dude, yeah. In uh, When I was in my 20s in film school, mm -hmm. um, I went deep on that movie. I learned everything about how it was made like it you know how it was shot how it was cut like for me it was such an exemplar of um sort of this really interesting human story but also this great tale of suspense like you know 
Um, anyway, so so the blockbuster cinema or, or the blockbuster film is sort of this sort of new genre, this new form, the summer, you know, they call them summer tent poles now. And there's sort of a weird, dirty connotation to that that I don't like. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that I've always wondered, like, do you guys know what you're saying when like terminology is important? Anyway, um, and so you know, Star Wars emerges as is part of the the this this sort of like early days of blockbuster cinema and it it was still pretty much untested right um and so there are stories we can we can talk about star wars and licensing that emerged specifically because of that but i think talking about star wars itself first and where it came from is important if we're talking about this idea of the culture of copying that we keep talking about right like artists are drawing from spheres of influence to the point where sometimes those fears of influence are so close to the, the, the new version, this new version of a thing that it looks like straight up copying. And so it's fairly common knowledge that cinema uh, historically has done this and maybe starting with George Lucas, you know, um, but may, like maybe starting with Star Wars because I can't think of an example earlier than this of something that's so successful that ends up making leading a whole bunch of other companies and producers and film people to make like clones and knockoff like movies and stuff so like just just to root this so that so you can see that i'm talking about like cinema writ large is very like in contemporary culture like is predicated on this thing so armageddon comes out the same year as deep impact yeah right Carnosaur, which is a like late Roger Corman classic, mm -hmm. comes out the same summer as Jurassic Park. So does this, we've talked about bootlegging and knockoffs and all these things, as it pertains to media and fictional characters and companies, does it function the same way in cinema? I think so. I okay. think it's like, you know, you're, you're copying you're copying a baseline model, but making it sort of different and legal. Again, that idea that you're making it legally distinct enough or, or what your lawyers are telling you are legally distinct enough that you won't get any in any hot water. Okay. That's not necessarily the case for all the stuff that I'm gonna talk about. But so this idea of copying from like, like, like plot points, like because Armageddon and Deep Impact are basically asteroids coming to the earth astronauts are going to go blow up the asteroid and save the planet right like that's the that's the pitch so that's the elevator pitch for both of those stories that get greenlit at the same time um but the way those stories are articulated are very very different if you've ever seen both of those movies but, yeah um, and so but that that idea and we'll get more into that I, that culture of copying i think the next episode i want to do the thing where i talk about like more sort of like broad general tales in like sort of toys and popular culture that have done this, like in stories about where things come from and who copied whom and, and that kind of thing. But I think that like, like Disney, Star Wars is sort of the other, like the one of the, the, the sort of the second central pillar of that conversation. Okay. Right? Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have said this stuff about Star Wars. Um, like the, what I'm about to tell you is not really anything new um, in terms of the spheres of influence that Lu Lucas drew upon because he talks about it 
Um, and, and fans have done a lot of work sort of drawing that out. And I'll, I'll call attention to something that I sent you earlier today as well. So, you know, Lucas was, was pretty vocal about like, this is sort of your drawing from the sort of like 1930s to 1950s adventure serials, these like sort of sci-fi, like low budget sci-fi serials like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, you know, and if you want to talk about copying like Buster Crab played both Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. <laughs> um, it's the same actor yeah. playing a different character. Um, so that's that's kind of like, you know, worth noting and interesting. That's just smart um, placement. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, also had to do with like the, the politics of sort of the leading man or whatever in Hollywood at a particular yeah. time. You know, the studio system and how basically studios like owned their actors in this really kind of disturbing way. Um, mm -hmm. Speaking of ownership, like, can you imagine? Like, you can only make movies with us. And if you go anywhere else, like, they have to buy you from us and then we'll pay you and stuff. It's just like, that studio. I hate that. Whole other, whole other kind of, like, you know, part of, I guess, the, like, the robber baron history of Hollywood. You yeah. Know? Um, we interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have engine failure. We must crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation. Hooray, we're saved, DOV2. Limited edition custom artist made action figures and DKE toys. Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures. DKE. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so, you know, Lucas is kind of this independent filmmaker. He has like sort of these unique visions and then he, he starts drawing on these serials to make this science fiction epic, which underwent like many, many drafts as we know. Um, and that kind of like, that kind of like epic outer space, like kind of soap opera proliferated in culture in the thirties to the like the sixties and said, there was always something. Right, whether it was like Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, things like Tom Corbett, Space Cadet, Star Trek, like all of these kinds of spheres of influence that are influencing Lucas making Star Wars. And then there's the other sort of really notable influences, um, like Akira Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress, mm -hmm. right? which is a mm -hmm. bunch of about a bunch of Ronin that go to a hidden fortress to save a princess. Like that yeah. sounds familiar as well. Um, there's a BBC article link that I can send you um that basically talks about like wow this is so much similar more so than similar than i thought the primary difference being is that at least in akira kurosawa's film like there are like women are represented like in far greater number and far more favorably so you know he's drawing from kurosawa's hidden portraits he's drawing from these serials it's all very common knowledge and then something that some people might not know um, is that the Death Star trench sequence, for example, when Lucas uh, and the rebels are, are attacking the Death Star, um, I sent you a YouTube video today of yep. some, a fan, an enterprising fan had taken the Death Star sequence from Star Wars and, and places it alongside a sequence from a 1955 film called The Dam Busters which is about a bunch of uh, World War II fighter pilots that have to blow up this dam um, to the point where things like 
the targeting machinery and the dialogue there is almost identical. The first shot that nearly goes in but misses is nearly identical. At some points, the dialogue is one-to-one -one between the two films. Like he literally took that sequence and just put it in outer space. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, like replace a dam with a big metal ball that yeah. fires a fucking death laser and replace the P-50, like whatever those airplanes were with like with spaceships and you're done. Yeah. So the back half of my movie. Yeah. What's crazy about these things is that it makes me think of is you can't, can he get like, let's say people like go through this and figure it out. He couldn't have gotten in trouble for one scene being like another scene. Correct. Cause it's not replacing the movie. It's just that scene he almost borrowed. Cause yeah, it's like the rhythm and the dialogue are the same, but everything else is so radically different that there's not much that I think that could be done. Yeah. And I would say, you know, and I would say this in defense of this scene, because people, you know, I've heard people say, oh, he just ripped off Dan Busters. And I'm like, but some of the differences between how those two things were shot, you're talking about early motion control computer systems on with giant model work. And of course, some of that, you know, model work was done in the 50s, but very like yeah. my thinking behind this is that that scene in Dam Busters was so good in the way that it sort of like built tension in the story that Lucas was basically using that as an animatic to storyboard that entire sequence because of all the motion control and the complicated effects that you needed to do. Like what better plan than to see something that's really, really similar to your idea and just lay it out and use that as your framework. Like that makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Do you think that there is a possibility? Because there is that idea of like the collective conscious, like, or conscience. And uh, it's like, oh, uh, we come to the same idea, but we've never seen each other's work, that type of stuff. Do you think that's possible? Or he had um, to have seen this? Um. I think it's entirely possible. I mean, it happens with like the toy scene, like every fucking day, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> movies are a little, I feel like movies are a little tougher because they come out, they're released, all those things. Mm. And so it seems like that might be a little harder to have that collective. But let's also keep in mind that Lucas was a film student who wanted to be a filmmaker who like grew up in California. Right? Yeah. So like if anybody, if anybody is going to know like the shit from the 50s, which is the shit that he would have been watching when he was a kid that he was saying was the inspiration for Star Wars. Mm -hmm. I think it stands to reason that he is very, very aware of that. Okay. Um, because the similarities, dude, like there's no, like, there, it's one thing to draw a similar idea, like, you know, either like in proximity to or at a distance from somebody else who's working on a similar idea. It's a whole other thing in terms of like, the specificity of that dialogue yeah right? okay like i'll have to go back and watch it and then post yeah it. like yeah because like when they're like oh your targeting computer can do the blah, blah 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 and then they're like oh we'll have this targeting thing on your airplane so when these two things line up you know that you're in the like clearly the inspiration for the entire death star run is this film yeah or that particular part of the film right so he's like so he's doing what other artists do which is pull from their spheres of influence 
you know, and at some point, you know, when that when that copying becomes that kind of pastiche, that kind of homage to something, you know, it's generally regarded as being like, like relatively acceptable. Yeah. Um, you know, there are business practices that we'll talk about where it seems like two things that were happening at the same time were happening because somebody got word about something. So someone else started doing it. That also happens all the time. Um, and yet still, you know, um, these things sort of persist. So, so in the same way that sort of Disney is drawing from his own experience with Oswald the Rabbit, like Lucas is drawing from his, his, his experience as a child to tell this like science fiction space opera, okay. right? Which also maps onto something like, you know, everybody talks about it, like Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. And when you're doing that kind of hero's journey work, um, you know, when you're telling that kind of story, like they line up pretty significantly like harry potter and star wars you know yeah that was um, there's a comedian that does a bit on that that ruins both harry potter and star wars for you yeah well i don't think i don't think any commentary should ever ruin the things that we love our feelings are still our feelings right like yeah. i even <laughs> just on that point like when when i did my interview uh with dove for new york comic-con online like the first time I spoke to him, like mm -hmm. we, we did, the, like I did that, like a kind of talk or whatever. I remember saying at one point, like objectively Star Wars is not a great film. Like we love it because we love it because it resonates with us for particular emotional reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, I think technically there's a lot going on in that film that makes it really great. But in terms of like story and, and plot and stuff, it's, it's, it's like pretty like lowbrow bubblegum Kind of stuff you know yeah. it's not it's not citizen kane it's not um and that's okay right because i mean now our entire like cinematic landscape is populated by movies like that mm -hmm. now i sound like martin scorsese that's totally not what i want <laughs> um but you know the but again like the spheres of influence and like how much influence that film the avengers is star wars you know like it's like they all kind of have that something that's sort of in that ensemble adventure kind of thing that seems to like all sort of like pull back to 1977. Mm. And so, you know, the first, the first part of this story is like, here's a guy who like clearly loved a bunch of stuff and made a thing that was based on his love of a bunch of that stuff and incorporated it. And I think did so lovingly rather than like sort of surreptitiously, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, there's this story of like him in relationship to retaining the rights to Star Wars, which is the other part of that early days that I think is really, really critical. So it's fairly common knowledge that um, Lucas waived his directing fee. That's not to say that he didn't waive his back end or he didn't make money off of Star Wars, but the money that he would have been paid that was like rate, scale, whatever for Star Wars. Yeah. He made a deal with Fox to to not take his director's fee in exchange for retaining the rights to the Star Wars franchise. And at this point... Had that ever been only, done before? Not really. To my knowledge, not really. I mean, it's very possible that people have done that for like, I'll waive my upfront fee for points on the back end or something, right? Like in order to save money on the production, like you can do it that way or whatever. I'm sure those kinds of deals get made all the time, especially with like bigger players and stuff. But like... 
you know, Lucas is relatively unproven as a filmmaker in Hollywood at this point, with the exception of American Graffiti. Mm-hmm. Um, How many you know, movies would you have said he would have done up until this point? Five, six? Less. Like okay. two, three. Like, you know, Jaws had only come out like a year or two before. Uh, like 76 or whatever so like even the blockbuster is like a is like a sort of new genre of cinema new people don't know what to do with it quite yet right like it changes like that cohort literally like like more than Ford Coppola two people changed Hollywood irrevocably in the 70s and 80s and that was George Lucas and Steven Spielberg Um, and so so Lucas says hey listen listen, Fox dudes or whoever, I'm going to assume they're dudes because it's Hollywood in the 1970s. And he says, don't pay me my director's fee. I want to retain the rights to Star Wars so I can license it. And, or, you know, maybe he didn't even have that conversation. So he hires a guy to start going around and trying to get people on board to buy into licensing Star Wars products. Like this is a film that's coming out, right? Um, you know, and some of the, the toys that made us did a much like sort of more in-depth job of discussing this, but it's it's still worth reiterating. It props to uh, to Mr. Vokweiss, who was a guest on your program. Yeah, I love Brian. <coughs> um, so, you know, this guy goes around and he goes to all these toy companies and he's like, got this thing coming. It's going to be huge. It's going to be bigger than anything. I don't know whether he said that or not. It's not a quote. That's <laughs> paraphrase. Yeah. Um, and he basically is like, Mattel says no. Migo, which was a big toy producer at that time, before the, you know, if we want to talk about ethics and business, before that guy ended up like going to jail for securities fraud. Um, uh, you know, also the the creator of Barbie, Ruth Handler, also ended up like being charged with yeah. securities fraud. We'll get to those stories. Those are the stories for next week, kids. Oh, anyway, right. so like everybody says no. That he goes to Cincinnati to Kenner right? They're in the Kroger building. It's all mythologized. Yeah. Uh, anyone who goes, ever goes to visit Earth to Kentucky, go across the river, pay on, you know, do your, pay your homage. Yep. Do your pilgrimage, go to the Hall of Justice, which is the train, old train station there. It's the building that inspired the Hall of Justice, the Union yeah. Station. Uh, it's a train museum now. Um, I've been doing my research for my February trip to Earth to Kentucky. Can you tell? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, right? And he, they go to Kenner and Kenner's like, yeah, sure, we could do this. And they they figure this stuff out, you know, they sort of work out a deal with Lucas and the deal really kind of favors Kenner because Lucas is unproven, both as a marketing sort of person, as a film, as a successful filmmaker, like he's not really a name is like, wait, the guy who made American Graffiti is making a movie about like people in spaceships. Like that's probably, you know, that's the kind of conversation you're having. And so Anyway, a deal is sort of struck pending the approval of Lucas with like that was part of the deal with Kenner is that like everything that they did, and this is common with all licensees, has to be approved by the licensor. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like you get the license and then you have like free reign to go make whatever the hell you want. It all has there. There's a back end like approval process. So you're working on it. It gets approved. You're working on it. It gets approved. You're working on it. It gets approved. Um, and so, so enter the story of the second part of our, um, or of our copying adventure for today, is the original prototypes 
for the Star Wars action figures. There we go. That um, are <laughs> those, these are my favorite stories when they talk about how I, they created them. Man, I love these things so much. So I'm going to pull up three photos here for you. So <laughs> this is this is the original sort of like action figure pitch meeting. Um, yeah, it's a really low res photo, this one. This is probably one of the few pictures I think that actually exists on the internet. All of the bodies, with the exception of R2-D2, which I think was an original sculpt, all of these figures were prototyped using the Fisher-Price Adventure people and oh, like yeah, additional yeah. sculpting on top of it. Um, <laughs> and in the original pitch, what I love about the original sort of like pitch for the figures is that they didn't finish C-3PO because that's how quickly they had to get going yeah. to get approval for this deal. Um, if they wanted to like make, you know, like make the movie was coming out, if they wanted to sort of hit Christmas of that year or whatever, like they had to move on this. And then there's a story around that that's interesting as well, but that everybody knows. I don't really need to talk about the early bird certificate because everybody knows that story. But what I love is C-3PO is a cardboard cutout. I like, love that. He's a drawing at this point. Um, Obi, yeah, um, and all of the other figures are Fisher-Price Adventure people that have had additional sculpting going on. But I found some detail shots um, that I love, man. Like, oh my God, I think this is my new favorite Chewbacca. Okay. <laughs> like. Actually doesn't look bad. Mm-mm. No, they did. They did a pretty great job with them, I would say. Yeah. But so, you know, here is a moment again in our sort of in our sort of history of of this franchise. Right. So like Lucas is drawing on spheres of influence for to make the film and then goes to try to market it. And basically, in order to to like seal the deal with Lucas, Kenner basically, someone at Kenner basically ran out and bought a bunch of Fisher Price Adventure people, which were, you know, the like one of the original three and three quarter inch lines that would have been very popular in that time mm -hmm. uh, and in through the 80s. And then basically makes customs or like boot like, like, you know, didn't really bootleg them because they didn't really copy them. They just made custom Star Wars figures out of Fisher Price Adventure people. I love it. So, like, you know, I think it's probably the first story of like action figure customization that I'm aware of. I mean, I'm sure that industry people had done this before, right? Yeah. Like that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Like, because reuse is something that's very common within a company. Like Battle Cat from He-Man was the tiger from the big gym line. Yep. Um, for example, like, so you're copying within your own, you know, within your own development cycle and like reusing molds and stuff too. That's very, very common. That's even more common today, I think, than ever. Yeah. Um, with like Marvel Legends and Star Wars and the way that body parts and tooling are like reused and stuff. But anyway, all this to say <laughs> that the entire reason that the Star Wars figures exist at all is because somebody went out and bought a bunch of Fisher Price people and has started customizing them. And the rest is history. Like I find that, and of course the, you know, the original sculpts as they come, when they finally get to work outside of the pitch to actually make the line, you know, our original sculpts. And of course, Andrew Getty's Green Plastic Tunnels, like everybody yeah. in the community knows his dad was one of the, was like a sculptor there. Yeah, there's this really great book that came out too that I highly recommend. It was independently produced. I don't know if you can still get copies, but if you can, it's worth the expense. 
It's, okay. it's pricey, but you know, independent book binding of quality is like difficult. And this yeah. is by like, you know, three different people and it is like authors and a designer. It's called Engineering and Empire. And it's basically like an oral history of the making of Star Wars toys. And they interviewed everybody, like every every designer, every sculptor, like gets their own time. It's full of behind the scenes photos of like scrapbooks and prototypes and like like it's just it's just amazing. Like I don't even I love that. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. It was it was yes. hard for me to get it because they wouldn't ship it to Canada. So I had to pay for shipping twice, once to go to somebody who would then ship it to me. Oh. Um, but it was still worth it even with that. Like, I'm very, very happy that I got that. I think it's a really wonderful document and a wonderful homage to like the people who made this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think what is, so going back to the toy part, mm-hmm. what is so interesting. So um, from our perspective, like, some of us make customs for people all the time. We have made stuff to be sold at E2K or with Dove or whatever. And I think we, you know, Nekusatsu said it when she said that she enjoyed doing this because it felt as if it was a little on the edge, a little mm. like, I don't know, something that had jagged edges, something that was a little illegal kind of. But what we're doing is we're just making money on the things that these companies have done when they were in a bind. Like we're kind of just doing this as an art form while they're doing it because they were in a rush. Yeah, because they're like, oh shit, we can't just sculpt this stuff from scratch. We don't have time. What do we do? It's like, yeah, someone go to the toy aisle in Kmart and see what's what. Because I've had that same conversation like, oh, I need to go to Dollar Tree, Dollar General or Walmart or something and see there's a toy that I can use the parts from. Yeah. And so it seems crazy that we we start at the same point, but we end with entirely different reasons. Yeah. And, you know, what's really interesting, too, and like the sort of the last part of this episode, um, we'll be talking about fandom and specifically like sort of the strategies that Lucas has used, that Lucasfilm and, yeah. you know, the Lucas sort of companies, family of companies, because there are a family of those companies. It's Lucasfilm. It used to be Lucasfilm and LucasArts. They're gone, whatever. Um, uh, and, and how they kind of embraced fandom a little more than some of the others, you know? Um, and not always either. That was not always the case. Um, but it came to that. And I think that that's the natural conclusion that any large company is basically come to like yeah culture is so big and this shit is everywhere there's no way we can stop at all it's like it's like to you know let's go back to the metaphor of the dam from dam busters it's like putting your finger in a dam that's about to burst it's not gonna do much yeah it's not gonna <laughs> stop many people you know um yeah so like so you know and this begins that relationship between kenner and star wars um and the phenomenon that that film becomes, right? Like unabashedly, like just like the entertainment phenomenon, like the pop culture phenomenon of the entire 1970s and the early part of the 1980s. And if we can pause, they all thought like, if I remember right, Mark Hamill got the script and didn't think it was gonna be great, right? Nobody thought it was going anywhere. I love that, Right. okay. 
And all the credit to uh, Marsha Lucas, like George Lucas's ex-wife, because people basically say, because she was the editor of the film, uh-huh. uh, they basically credit her with helping, like trimming all of the fat out of that and just making it move and be the story that it is. There was recently a book about George Lucas or something where she was quoted in it. And she talks about the prequels and how they were just garbage too. It's really funny. <laughs> um, you know, and we could talk about the prequels. Like you want to talk about or like copying like inside your own house, right? Like the way that both the icon, like the iconography and the narrative trajectory to a certain extent um like kids losing their hand in the yeah. same episode you know and all that kind of stuff all that mirroring like on one hand you can make an argument that he's really following like sort of the joseph campbell model of the hero's journey journey and the mirroring mm-hmm. of generations there but on the other hand he's really kind of just pulling elements from his own story and retelling it with like you know his dad or whatever um but all this to say that the transmedia phenomena that was to become Star Wars starts at the point, like I think, when they start realizing, okay, we got a toy deal. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, let's go to Marvel, Marvel Comics, right? And then they, in the 1980s, and then there's the other experiment for the transmedia, the early transmedia experiment, the thing that nobody likes to talk, every fan loves to talk about, but Lucas just like will not engage with is the Star Wars holiday special right yep yep so so this is the early like this is like for what we understand to be a transmedia brand model this is it like being figured out in real time from like 1977 to like 1985 yeah you know and how many people saw the phenomenon and how many people glommed onto this we interrupt this broadcast of toys on top to bring you this earth to Aliens have landed, Earthling. I want lowbrow art and bootleg toys. Toys, 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 toys. Well, you come to the right place. Earth to Kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi, lowbrow, and art bootleg toys. Toys, 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 toys. They're located over there at 836 Main Street, Covington, Kentucky. Toys, toys, toys. They carry original art, vintage action figures, designer bootleg toys, and toys, 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 and t-shirts. Designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists. Thank you, Earthling. I enjoy Earth to Kentucky. I have all my favorite bootleg art toys. toys. Hey, look at that over there! It's a spaceship! Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now. www.earthtokentucky.com That's earth2kentucky.com Or just land your spaceship when they're open. So quickly in the 70s and 80s, both in the cinematic world and in the toy world is absolutely remarkable. Um, and so I've made a list of movies that everybody should see that are based on Star Wars or at least based on the model of Star Wars and was like, oh, the spaceship is huge. We got to get out there and we got to do something, right? So I'll put uh, this list in the info of the episode so you can watch. Yeah, I'll just send you my notes, man. Um, I love it. um, So, of course, we have the black hole. Yep. Which is, I don't know why Disney thought the next Star Wars would be... um, apocalypse now set in outer space but <laughs> apparently that's right it's <laughs> so if you want to talk about copying apocalypse now is joseph conrad's heart of darkness yeah the famous novel that everybody was supposed to read in high school and maybe like a dozen of us did mm-hmm. uh and then and then on the other hand you have the black hole which is also kind of heart of darkness yep and that's why i love that movie so much i'm always like this is my favorite favorite joseph conrad adaptation because all it does is it takes the journey, like 
the closer you get to the black hole, which is the darkest part of the universe, the darker your soul becomes, or whatever. Yeah. The fuck. Just like the, just like the Amazon. It's like you know, it's like. I love that movie. I like unabashedly to this day. I love the black hole, um, and I love the the marketing misstep that was the black hole. Yeah. Right. So you get a line of action figures from Mego in three or three and quarter inch scale. Why three and three quarter inch scale? Because the standard has been set with the Kenner Star Wars action figures at this point. Which right, and it we... was going that way anyway. Like the Fisher Price Adventure people were the inspiration for the the scale of the Kenner Star Wars figures because they knew when they saw the production stills and models and blueprints that they were going to want to populate that world with like vehicles and play sets, right? Like Bernie Loomis, like at Kenner is famous for calling that toyetic and that's where that term comes from. Yeah, like, there's that weird thing. If you think back to toys the toys that made us they say that that guy put his fingers up and he said i want it to be this big which is fine and and the people measured it and it was three and three quarter okay that's a fun story but what we do know is that other toys existed that were three and three quarter how does the truth of that sorry getting close to my mic and i know that was perfect (laughs) that's good but (laughs) how does the truth of that story stand in light of the fact that we know that they were based on the the Fisher Price figures, which are three and three quarter inches. Yeah. Right. Like one of those things, <laughs> it may well be true. And then they went out and they said, Hey, we found these things. Yeah. But there's something, you know, like, let's be honest. When you talk to people who are talking about the corporate histories, most of the time, there's a lot of mythologizing that goes on there. Right. Yeah. And um, I think it's crazy to me too, just how size of these action figures and these things are changing and shifting because they wanted other, to build. Yeah. And there are other reasons for it that people cite, which again, I've never found like in my research, right? Like one of my, one of my, my dissert, I have a dissertation, dissertation chapter Yeah. on like the shift from discourse from dolls to action figures, which we will talk about next week as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, it's really interesting. GI Joe, thank you for that. Yeah, and then and then how, and then and then the changes in where those like seminal touch points are along the along the way, and so you know the Fisher Price Adventure people obviously precede Star Wars, but it's Star Wars that sets this standard, moving everything forward, right? Like. Um, so anything for, to a certain extent, but like, there's a reason, like when Hasbro comes back to and GI Joe is three and three quarter again. Right? Yeah. All of the, like Mego was still doing, it's like six and eight inch dolls. I'm going to call them great. dolls. Yeah. Cause they, that's what they are. They're They're, they look like dolls. Yeah. You put clothes on them. You take clothes off of them. Brian Heiler would call him a doll, so and he's yeah, a part of that. Yeah, so yeah, and like like credit, yeah, credit to 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 Brian for some of the knockoff stuff that I also want to talk about. So you get movies like The Black Hole, and then you get stuff like Roger Corman, right? Always got to step in and do do his thing. Does a film called Battle Beyond the Stars, which is basically the Magnificent Seven in outer space. Okay, uh, which is also a very fun movie. Um, you know, to a certain extent, sorry kids, Masters of the Universe is based on Star Wars. Um, That's it, Particularly, particularly I, I know about like four people who are like- Dying right now. Like, like heresy. Yeah, like how the fuck dare you? Yeah, um, yeah. don't dox me, bro. 
Um, (laughs) But like, maybe even more so, actually, I would say the movie more than the cartoon, like, like the sort of the, but, but that transmedia model that emerges, the comics, the TV show, the toys, all of that stuff that like He-Man is following, following the same business model that Lucas followed. Like that's what Mattel's doing. Everybody saw Star Wars and everybody said, oh, this is how you do this, right? Yeah. Um, but other movies, and there's so many good ones. Like, have you ever seen Star Crash? No, never even heard of it. Is it awful? Uh, oh, it's awful. But there are robots and laser swords. Um, Wait, I thought you said and, it was awful. That sounds great. And 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 David Hasselhoff. Oh, David, my man. I know uh, you're watching the podcast. Thank yeah, you, David. <laughs> yeah, let's get let's let's get David Hasselhoff in here and talk about Star Trek. Oh, but that's not David Hasselhoff. That's I think that's the other actor who looks okay. like identical to David Hasselhoff. Where's the toy line for this? That was amazing. Yeah, let, but let me let me go back and find some. Okay, so here's another image from Star Crash. So to David Hasselhoff's right in this photo is Christopher Plummer. So there's your Obi-Wan character. Yep. Let's get a British dude. Although I think, isn't Christopher Plummer Canadian? I think he's Canadian. <laughs> I should know that. I think they're going to Oh, we lost him as a listener. Yep. Yeah, they're going to revoke my citizenship now. The Stratford Festival Police, they're going to come get me. Um, uh, so yeah, so there's Star Crash. Like here's um, well, I gotta stop and reshare when I do this. So I'm narrating my my interneting or my my. Oh my gosh! The so there's a movie poster. Like check that out. Right? I'm uh, it's like Barbarella meets Star Wars. Like yeah, and what's yeah. crazy? So this is let me. So you have like the the spaceship that looks a lot like some of the medical ships that are in the latest star wars movies that have come out and you have like the iconic woman in whatever she's wearing with a robot next to her and i think that there's oh a, yeah, there's, my god there's a painting that like does it in like japanese that's the japanese movie poster clearly They're, they don't look terrible though it's terrible but it's like fun terrible as most of these <laughs> things are it seems like for the movie posters, one. That's how Star Crash as well. How long after Star Wars did this come out? Uh, I think a year or two. So in the, you're if still you... looking. You're looking at seventy eight or seventy nine. So like, not only are these things being made, dude, people are like, you have a week, write a script. We're in the studio for four weeks. We edit for two. Like picture lock. Off it goes to drive-ins and like Saturday matinees. So go like, back one picture. So the Star Crash uh, Japanese movie poster version, yeah. what it looks like from someone who's not in cinema, who has no part in cinema, is they saw Star Wars and they saw the universe that was being created. And yeah. so for this movie poster, they said, we need to put all the characters possible so that people fall in love with the universe immediately. Well, and Star Wars did that to great effect, the famous Hildebrand Brothers poster with Luke standing in the middle with the lightsaber and Leia down at his side and stuff. Like, like, you know, and that's the other thing that you can see. You can still see the legacy of original Star Wars movie poster design all over over the place. Every time there's a movie where it's like a big become, they're trying to make a franchise like Harry Potter and you line those up, they look very similar. So all of this kind of stuff is going on too, right? But in the 70s, you had all these sort of like ripoff films that were really fantastic. Um, I'm just going to keep going back here. 
uh, to see what else. Oh, that's a toy. But I wanted to find. Okay, so yeah, um, this is Battle Beyond the Stars. I'll okay. label these for you so that you can see. So Thank this God. is Magnificent Seven in space. Um, Star Crash is there. There's some Italian ones. There's an Italian filmmaker named Alfonso Brescia, and he made like four or five movies. It was like War of the Planets, War of the Robots, Star Odyssey. Um, and they were sort of like got increasingly like sexier and like Italian exploitation film as time goes on <laughs> to sort of keep bringing people back to the theater to see these movies, right? So we obviously um, need to do a showing of all these movies as a Toys on Tap thing. Oh man, do a live stream. Start yeah. Twitch. Let's start a Twitch and we can do uh, we can do live streams of this. So, so this is La Bestia, Bestia Nello Spacio. So that's like the beast from outer space. Um, and there's like a naked lady. I'm into like, this covering her breasts and stuff. So I this can't is tell like you how much I'm into this. Yeah. So this is like 70s Italian exploitation film is doing Star Wars as well. And then the the you know um, I don't know if you have ever seen the Turkish Star Wars film, Dunyayi no. Kudaran Adam. It's on no. YouTube. Yeah, you got um, a poster for it. Uh, I think I do. So we took a little break so that I could. Um, do my due diligence and oh. share with you some images from Turkish Star Wars. Dunyai. Dunyai Kurtaran Adam, the man who saves the world. Uh, shot in a desert, guy in a biker outfit. You can see him like, you can see him here. There's like this, you know, there's like your Darth Vader villain and there's robots and stuff. There's even a Millennium Falcon <laughs> on the movie poster. And this is... This is why this movie is a ripoff movie is so fantastic. So what do you do when you have no money and you want to shoot an outer space battle scene? You put dudes in motorcycle helmets and then you got well, pictures. I, you, yeah, I do. Uh, and it's just not letting me share for whatever reason. That's weird. Anyway, the Turkish government's watching. That's why. Pretty sure the Turkish government probably paid for this movie to be made. Um, so this is, Oh, Look, with Star Wars in the background. So what this is, is the whole way that they shot the outer space battle scene in this movie was that they used footage from Star Wars and spliced it together. And then when they wanted to show the pilots in their cockpits, they're literally sitting in a room with a rear projection screen of the space battle scene from Star Wars <laughs> while wearing motorcycle helmets and talking about doing space battle things. So you're telling um, me I can make a movie right now? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. I've always, yeah, Turkish Star Wars has a very, like, a warm place in my heart. Um, and then from, you know, so that's cinema, and there were also this sort of cinema stuff, but people were also thinking about TV, and there's, you know, I'm sure there are, there are many other films um, that I have on this list, as well as many other films that I'm sure other people could cite as being from that era, because there were so many. Yeah. But I think one of the really important moments is also Battlestar Galactica. Um, okay. And I don't know if I need to show you Battlestar Galactica. No, I've seen images of it, and yeah. Lucas tried to sue Battles Glenn A. Larson, and didn't um, didn't win didn't succeed. Yeah, but I think he maybe should have. Okay. Like it's, you know, it's 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 really remarkably close in some ways. But um, they did they not make a show? It was a show, correct? Mm -hmm. So it's a in my head, it's a little tough to sue a company and say like, hey, like you're ripping this off. They made a show and had to fill it. So I'm assuming it was only inspired by Star Wars, correct? Yeah, yeah, it was, 
outer space shit is big. Space battles are big. Yeah. Robots and stormtroopers are big. Let's take a whole bunch of that stuff and write this story, right? Yeah. And arguably something for Battlestar Galactica is an interesting example. I think it's like it's like the killer bootlegs of mainstream media. Yeah. In some way, right? In that it starts as like taking some stuff and kind of remixing it and making it your own. And then it grows and becomes something much more than it ever was in its original sort of instantiation. And like all the credit to Killer, that's a compliment, right? Yeah. And I think Battlestar Galactica did this really well. Um, you know, and I, I talked about this last week, how like companies will just hold on to the rights to stuff and eventually they might develop it, right? So like Ronald Moore um, makes Battlestar Galactica in like, what was it, 2004, 2000? The reboot of Battlestar Galactica like takes that story and really runs with it and makes it something different yeah, um, and something more than it ever was while keeping remarkably keeping close to like some of the original mythology. Okay. Um, uh, in terms of like, you know, the conception of the universe and there's like 12 tribes of humans and all of that stuff. And each one has a different planet and earth is the 13th tribe and the robots rise up and destroy the humans. And the ragtag group of people are going to traverse the galaxy on the run from these robots that are trying to exterminate them and find earth um, okay and then you know and eventually both series they find earth but it's very different battlestar galactica 1980 different kind of show ripping off itself but like having no budget so it's about a bunch of people on earth like like battlestar galactica people finding earth and sort of like trying to figure out like how to integrate into society and prepare them for their anyway it's garbage but they had flying motorcycles so i loved it yeah, I was five years old, right? Um, yeah. So Battlestar Galactica is an interesting example of something that lines up really, really closely, but still ends up being declared as something that it's of itself um, rather than a direct sort of like ripoff. But again, the model gets followed. Mattel makes action figures and toys. Um, there's the famous story, actually, the reason that like we didn't get a rocket firing Boba Fett when we were kids was yeah. because a rocket firing Cylon Raider fired a rocket down a child's throat and killed that child. And so that's why all the rockets in Boba Fett ended up being glued uh, for that's the original right. mail order Boba Fett. So what's yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. That circle is kind of interesting though, right? Because it's like Battlestar Galactica is in part inspired, is in part sort of ripped off from Star Wars and something Battlestar Galactica ends up impacting like having impact back on the other stuff that inspired it in the first place i find that stuff interesting i don't know yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know so that's the the sort of the movie in the media landscape and then there's that that whole idea of the transmedia model that i talked about and i think i've been pretty clear about what that means so like transmedia as a term um means like sort of multiple crossing over media in the same yeah. way that transgender means crossing over like changing genders it's about changing media and you know so but in in the in the the transmedia model it's not like you're moving from one medium to the other and you're sort of leaving the other medium behind it's you're moving from one medium to the other and occupying all of those spaces and sectors so star wars starts this in the most major way with the toys with you know like fast food premiums with comic books uh, novelizations, like very early sort of like novelizations, like the early adventures of Han Solo and Lando Calrissian, 
the original sequel to Star Wars is the Splinters of the Mind's Eye novel that was based more on like that was like what if Star Wars the movie doesn't do well well then we can Alan Dean Foster writes a book where Luke kills Darth Vader like immediately yeah. after the events of Star Wars right um like novels video games yeah like TV cartoons the droids cartoons uh in the Ewoks cartoons of the 1980s let alone the Star Wars holiday special which I mentioned and glossed over um you know all of these things inspire other companies to start doing this and so toy companies particularly in animation studios start partnering up with one another and start doing this work so he-man yeah. started in like as a transmedia object he-man was a figure that came with a comic that explained his story and then became a cartoon um there are marvel comics interestingly created the Crystar crystal warrior comic book series is a way to create a spin-off cartoon line and toy line and there was in fact the toy line for Christar. Um, I have a magazine of the very first issue of Marvel Age which was like a magazine where Marvel reported on stuff that Marvel was doing it was one of those. Oh weird. Another sort of facet of the transmedia thing like Nintendo Power or whatever right? Yeah. Um, but a Marvel comics version and the first issue of Marvel Age is all about the development of the Christar franchise. Hmm. And then Remco ended up taking that line on. And Remco is also known for doing sort of like knockoffs and, you know, doing like some licensed work, like Ram they did Rambo. Rambo, for fuck's sake, was a cartoon, a con like in a toy line. Yeah. Like, a movie about a traumatized Vietnam veteran who yeah. decimates the National Guard in like a small American town in the first show. Just, you know, like goes and fights with the Taliban like in this the third movie yeah that guy gets his own cartoon um and and toy line Chuck Norris cartoon comic book toy line not a particular franchise that he was involved in just Chuck Norris like Chuck Norris is his own franchise that yeah. feels like that when that Chuck Norris shit was big years ago, that should have been the shirt. Chuck <laughs> yeah. Norris is his own franchise. Anyway, yeah. so that model persists today. And like, if you are, like, we, you and I talked about this in the first episode. And it was like, well, eventually the idea is, is the way for you to be successful. And we've seen this happen to some people in the toy scene. Like, for example, like Killer Bootlegs, like I just mentioned, who sort of transform that work into their own IP so that they can make a living from it. Um, you know, or like, or like, get it out in the world in that transmedia way. Yeah, and killer is killer. Like, like I've never spoken to him, you know, but like all the respect for like he's following that model. Yeah, and I think he's got he's... toys. You know, he's got his toys. He's got his comic. Like, when's the cartoon coming, Peter? Well, there is a. I don't know if you've seen Nine to Five Warriors. It's a toy creator that is basing their like designs and stuff off of the ideas of like early nineties and eighties and seventies cartoons mm. and stuff. And so he has um, cartoon commercials and wax packs and releasing the toy. Like mm. it's a crazy gig, yep. but they're doing the same transmedia thing. Yeah. And like, you know, to be an artist like that, there's that idea of, and I've talked about this before about like, 
you know, a, a sign of the sort of the age that we live in is the collapsing of boundaries between like art and commerce and branding and those kinds of things. So it makes sense that artists are doing that kind of transmedial work now. One, because it's, it's a way to sort of express yourself in different media forms using similar ideas, which seems yeah. incredibly efficient to me. Um, and then two, because this is what we've known. Like, I'm of the generation that, like, I learned how these things work because Star Wars was the way that Star Wars was. Yeah. And everything in my childhood that came after it until I, like, you know, outgrew it and then, you know, started approaching middle age and rediscovered it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to terms with your own mortality makes you want to collect action figures a little bit. Anyway, yeah. no, that's not true. But do, do you know what I mean? Like, we really have, we really have... Uh, been immersed in this now for like 40, almost 50 years, these particular models, uh, and they stick. And so we copy them as independent practitioners because we see that in the world and everything that we do, right? Culture always responds to culture. Yeah. So like, who doesn't want to make wax packs of their stuff? Like, I've been thinking about um, the stickers that I made for the Frank Invader uh, as part of the prize inside the cereal box, I made the stickers a little smaller than a traditional collector card and they're closer to like the Panini sticker books. Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh fuck, I should make a sticker book. And then all of my, my exclusives can come with a sticker. And then you, at the end of it, you could get a book and put all the stickers in the book. I was like, there oh, you wow. go. That's amazing. Right? Like, you know, and there was a garbage pail kids sticker book like that, that someone in France made that Dove actually messaged me to ask me to help translate for him because I'm, I live in Quebec and I kind of know French. Um, yeah. <laughs> so like people are doing that kind of work and it's really fascinating, right? So that's that sphere of influence again. Yeah. Um, and so that transmedia model, again, this is like the original sin, you know, this is like, this is like the, the, the poisoned apple to a certain extent. Um, you know, it's delicious, but it's still not good for you. Yeah. Um, that's sort of what I mean by that. Like, we need to critique it, but also understand it's sort of the law of the land in a lot of ways when it comes to like marketing. Um, in the way that people like brand themselves cross-platform now, you know, <laughs> as an independent practitioner who makes action figures of TikTok stars, you know exactly <laughs> yeah. what I'm talking about, friend. Yeah, I think right? what's interesting is the transmedia idea has continued, but how that, like the medias by which we are pushing together have like drastically changed. Now yeah. we have shifted from the 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 cool so okay do you remember uh the gargoyle cartoon yes and then i was probably they, too old to watch it by like normal people's standards but i've just i've never stopped watching like animated like programming oh, well you're good yeah. then they made um like the action figure they did the typical thing the action figures they probably had a comic mm -hmm. book all kinds of stuff and i always keep that in mind uh when i create but now it transitions to I made a toy of an, a mu music artist who is now asking me to put music on a box so that when he gets a toy on his card art now sings his song so he can then make like, and it's transitioning in NFTs and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the media that we use has changed drastically, but the technique, it's still the same. Well, the NFT thing is really interesting too, if we want to go there, because like it does sort of start in this independent place, right? Yeah. Uh, and immediately, like, Beeple makes the money that Beeple makes. 
and Tops announces that the gal the their digital card collecting for like garbage pail kids yeah and the star wars stuff that they do in their apps is switching to an nft crypto model mattel starts releasing nfts of hot wheels cars Jeez. um like you know it happened like so quickly um you know and like that market that bubble i could be wrong i don't want to predict and say the, that crypto bubble is going to burst but like i can't imagine it being like fully wholly sustainable for that long um, because I feel like what's ironic about digital culture in some way is that we also consume more material culture probably than we ever have. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but that's, the, that's part of that beast that is the transmedia model, right? Because it's like, for example, like somebody like Hasbro who has the Star Wars license or like Marvel Legends, for example. So now like variants of figures used to be things that were manufacturing errors yeah right like han solo's head is bigger in this one than in this one that 1990s obi-wan lightsaber is like 12 feet tall when you look at it in scale it's too long but that's the long the, yeah all of the, the, those kind of variant things end up being like manufacturing errors that people then find desirable to collect because of how rare they are and part of the arcane knowledge of fandom you know and that specialized knowledge and stuff <clears throat> but then increasingly you start seeing these things within those same transmedia models where like Hasbro does Marvel Legends, but they have MCU and yeah. comic book versions, right? And they do the same with the Star Wars Black Series. They're doing comic book characters, they're doing cartoon characters, they're doing live action characters. So as the well of media expands, the whole idea of collecting the characters in that franchise as a material object expands. And it's like, you know, it's this idea that like, it's this this infinite pool of resources. Every time a new character emerges, you can just like sell that thing yeah. or even sell a different version of the same character back, which is also something that Kenner started with the Star Wars figures. Nobody else had done that before. So you got Luke in the first movie and then you got Luke in Bespin outfit in the second movie and Luke in the Hoth outfit. And then you also got Luke in his Return of the Jedi Black Jedi outfit, but also his Endor like camouflage outfit on Solo, same thing. Lando, Leia, you know. Yeah. Um, Where's my Jabba outfit? Come on, people. Yeah. I want Jabba in an outfit. Yeah, yeah. Jabba wearing a Hawaiian shirt, which I think would be <laughs> the perfect thing for whatever reason. A, a red Hawaiian shirt with like big green and yellow leaves on it. Yep, yep. Somebody somebody make that for me. Does it octopus? We'll look into you. Yeah. Well, that, oh my God, that Jabba the Hutt, like puppeteer puppet set that he did. Yeah. Just mind blowing stuff, man. Anyway, so yeah, so this is the model, right? So like outside of, outside of the transmedia model, you have, you have a whole bunch of other sort of like, and this is, this is sort of Mr. Heiler's territory with his knockoff book, but I think it's like a, you know, a fun thing to talk about because he knows this stuff really well. Um, as well and I'm kind of aware of it and I think most of us are sort of in possession of a lot of that knowledge when it comes to like well-known Star Wars knockoffs yeah like the Night of Darkness for example which is the ideal toys do you know that I, I don't think I've seen that one um, so ideal toys does a line called um, Star Team and there's like a like a weird sort of silver vac metal kind of c-3po guy there's a robot called the zeroid 
but this is the night of darkness oh he looks fantastic yeah he's missing a boot <laughs> he's very loose i got him very cheap uh, because of the condition it was in but i kind of really love old toys that have clearly like been played life, with yeah you know? it's like if i got woody from toy story i wouldn't be rubbing the old kid's name off the foot i'd be like keeping yeah. it an homage to that child's like, the missing boot is my favorite by the yeah, way yeah he's missing a boot he doesn't he even have a sock now. he's barefoot yeah um so they did a line of this there's a line from um who did the staroid raiders i can't remember let me pull up a picture of it um i just need to do a quick google i don't know why i can't remember the name of tomland so this company called tomland does these like three and three quarter inch um figures called the staroid raiders that are all just kind of like star wars adjacent like they're okay. space toys oh they're kind of fun i like so the card back star command star yeah star raid raiders and there's you know and there's so many of these things like there's there's the star team figures with the night of darkness zeb 21 and then zeroid so vaguely r2 vaguely c3po but also alien yeah right like kind of not quite there but again that idea of a knockoff being like it's legally distinct enough from Star Wars that it can capitalize on someone's grandparent going to Kmart yeah. in like 1979 to buy their kid a space toy because they're all into Star Wars and then you end up getting this at Christmas. Um, and ironically, kids at the time were probably super disappointed because it wasn't on brand. And now these are the things that are worth far more money than any of that other shit because they're <laughs> rare, right? Because this is the stuff that probably got thrown out more. Yeah. Um, so this is one of my favorites. This is um, a company from Argentina called Plasticos Pedro Luca. Um, and they did a series called Ombro Espacial, Spaceman. And he is articulated and you know, cause it says articulado in very large letters. I did an homage series of these Darth Vader's where I re basically remade the backer on my own, made it look as close as possible um, and I did each of the variants because there's like four color variants of the Darth yeah. Vader. There's a Bosk that's actually a Fisher Price Adventure People Spaceman with a Bosk head painted gold inside the helmet. There's a Han Solo like that. It's Han Solo's head inside a Fisher Price space dude. Like I'm really into weird. that. Yeah, I love this. It's impossible to find one, um, but really sort of like fantastic and interesting work. Um, of course, Uze. Yeah. Everybody knows Uze. That right? toy Again, is the most expensive. The, the Turkish Star Wars figures that ironically have no real connection to the Turkish Star Wars movie, which is even... <laughs> <laughs> like, I love that so much that, like, these things were still kind of made in their own vacuum, right? The Star Knight, which is Darth Vader on a police motorcycle. Like, I just pulled, like, there's so many, like, different absurd... Um, oh, this is one of my favorites. I didn't even get to this. What movie so, is that? So this is a Japanese movie called Walk, uh, uh, War in Space. Okay. And this is basically Chewbacca with giant yellow horns and a halberd. Um, it's a fantastic. It's another one of those like fantastic sort of movies. I just forgot to mention it, but it's one of my favorites as well. Well, if you go to the Toys uh, on Tap Twitch, it'll be on there. Yeah, yeah, um, and well, yeah, and then so even things like Micronauts, like Baron Karza, the villain of Micronauts, is basically like a Darth Vader sort of knockoff. And that comes out of Japan as a, a part of the Micro Man line, I think, first. Yeah. 
Or is Baron Carzo one of the Mego figures? Anyway, but like Micronauts follows that model as well, right? Like it, it was a toy line by Mego, and then it was also a comic book and uh, a pretty successful comic book at that. So, so this is like the sphere of influence of this thing is just like it's like it's like a meteor impact on culture. That yeah, we're still feeling like we're still feeling the Star Wars shockwave because the trans because part of the transmedia model leads to new stories being told in established universes which extends the life of those brands which is why we're in this position where all of these ips that have been around for 50 60 70 years are still the primary things that we're consuming because these companies like fans deem them valuable companies deem them valuable and they just keep like reselling it to us right like this yeah. is, this is what's happening um and then, so the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, today was a, just a little bit about fandom and how Lucas treated it a little bit differently. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the history of Star Wars fan films. I um, have never seen a Star Wars fan film in have, my life. You've never seen, have you ever seen Troops? Uh, no. So Troops um, is a fantastic, it's still one of my favorite, favorites um i just want to pull up the name of the filmmaker so i so i give him his proper credit credit so in 1997 a young independent filmmaker named kevin rubio makes a sort of parody fan film um that uh of star wars called troops okay which is cops but stormtroopers on tattoo <laughs> And they're looking for the missing droids. Yeah, and it's just them talking. And and it's well, it's them talking. It's them on them on patrol. They even meet Owen and Baru. Okay. And then you find out the reason that they're dead and burnt to a crisp in the movie when Luke returns home, and he finds them dead, and that's the catalyst for him to like sort of go out to save Princess Leia with Obi Wan and stuff. Uh, it's not the reason that you think it is. And Troops sort of rewrites that part of the history in this like quite kind of hilarious way. I don't want to spoil it. Um, it's like literally like 12 minutes long or something. And it's on YouTube, man. You got to watch it. So, so you know, one of the things about fandoms um, over time, because we've talked, I've talked, I keep talking about fans. And I think one of the reasons for that is because for the most part, I think it's, you know, we would like, I think there are, there are, there are certain people in this community maybe perhaps I don't want to I don't want to like I'm not saying this to cast cast dispersions and I am yeah. not saying this to like make any assumptions but I think there's there there is a particular sentiment among some people at least people I've talked to that wish that this sort of community of practice and this sort of art practice was not so inextricably linked to fandom that it was kind of a little less adjacent to that stuff, right? Um, but fandom is like one of the reasons that frankly drives what we do is they have consumed, you know, they have consumed so much of the sort of authorized media that they've run out and then they come to us for other content like that. Yeah. Um, and But so in the 90s with the rise, like the sort of the emergence of the handheld digital camcorder, that changes a whole lot. And then, so you start seeing fan films emerge. And one of the interesting things about this is that like in the beginning, Lucas would try to shut some of this stuff down 
and then very quickly, you know, like um, in 2002, the official Star Wars fan film awards emerges and it's sponsored by Lucasfilm. Okay. So okay. it's like, so go, he... no, no, go out there. Tell your story. Yeah. Tell okay. your Star Wars story. Do that stuff. And none of it's canon. Very, of course not. But like, yeah. honestly, nothing is, we've never had, we haven't had the canon conversation i don't give a shit about canon in any medium in any <laughs> narrative universe and you know why because it's all made up yeah like it it makes no sense it's like saying that this is canon and this is not and like it's a way of use it's, it's a way of a person sort of coming to terms and accepting the things that they like about a thing and then rejecting the things that they don't right okay um that's how i see it and when if you look at the history of batman like all oh. of Batman's history in comics could be quote unquote canon. Yeah. But think about all of the radically different interpretations of that character that we've gotten over time. Right? Yeah. And think about the ways in which, you know, these universes get interpreted and reinterpreted and they change over time. Like, you know, there is a lot of critique around the Disney Star Wars films. Um you know, around like representation and so-called wokeness. And I'm like, well, everybody who liked this thing in the 70s, like acknowledge that that was like, there were particular, uh, particular sort of like ideologies and politics at work in that time that are represented in that film. And the times have changed and more people simply want to see themselves represented in the entertainment they consume. And there's nothing wrong with that. It is a sign of the times that we live in all culture reflects the times that we live in like spare me your somebody ruined something because they made a new version of a thing maga yeah. bullshit and move on with your life yeah okay there's my this is soap like box. <laughs> soapbox thank you so much anecdotally for giving me like six weeks of this um it's getting a lot out of my system i feel like yeah. it's like anyway all that to be said right like i don't think canon matters um, I want interesting stories and if they're new and different, all the better. Like, yeah, frankly, I think like if we, I look at the history of the star Wars universe, one of the films that was made under the Disney sort of regime is rogue one. And I think it's one of the best star Wars films ever. made. I'm kind um, of into that. Yeah. Right. Like it is a fantastic heist movie. It's got your, you know, your group of adventurers, the characters are interesting. Um, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, it's got a creepy CG princess lay at the end, but I'll forgive that for everything else that it does. That's so anyway, like, you know, I talked about sort of Disney's approach to this kind of stuff last week. And so yeah. here we have, here we have a different model and a model that says, oh no, like to a certain extent, yes, we own Star Wars, but also we understand that you feel that you, you have spent so much time and you're so passionate about this thing that you have a kind of ownership over it. And we want to allow that space. I'm not sure under Disney that looked like it was going to change. And I think Disney just gave up. Yeah. Because again, so many people are making so many things all the time. It's the the finger in the dam, right? Like this is simply done under the fact that if they tried to sue everybody, like they're le like, that would be the thing that, that would bankrupt Disney is them trying to sue every individual person who was doing something with yeah. something that Disney owns because Disney owns everything. Um so yeah, and I think we can see this reflected in the community with some of that stuff that I talked about before. There are people who are totally cool with being like, yeah, take my idea and do your own version of it. And then there are people who are like, oh no, I got to shut that shit down because it's mine, right? Yeah. Um, like, 
like maybe do the second thing because it makes you less of a dick i don't know yeah i don't know i just like it all it all comes back to these sort of like for me these different models and like we can have an open culture approach or we can have a very sort of like closed off approach to culture and i think the best version of ourselves exists in an open cultural approach and i think lucas film acknowledged that even though they resisted for a very long time like all through the 80s and 90s until you know 2002 and then the work that and but something has happened in that in that the relationship between fandoms because of the internet and these companies has changed and there's so much feedback heading in the other direction that fandoms are actually having sway over what gets made and how it is made now Wow. And th- th- right, like the Snyder Cut doesn't exist without like a bunch of people whining on Twitter. Yeah. Um, or like, honestly, the rise of Skywalker isn't the film the, that it is if it wasn't for the, the sort of the toxic fan backlash against The Last Jedi. Yeah. And controversial thing that I will say to end this podcast is that I love The Last Jedi. So <laughs> deal with that, friends. I think it's the best film of that trilogy for sure. Yeah. Um, and it's up there for me in terms of like, I just love the story of a, like a failed hero who has to redeem himself. That's yeah. a natural conclusion to that story for Luke Skywalker for me. I get it. Makes sense. Um, and Ryan Johnson is a great storyteller. You know, some of it was derivative, but otherwise, yeah. So, so all this to say that like at the end of like, you know, hour four or whatever the fuck this is that you've been listening to me go on today um, <laughs> is that it's clear, it's really clear that like, that this franchise in particular has had such a colossal impact on culture that like i still think we don't even we haven't even come to terms with what that looks like yet yeah you know um and i think there's lots of really interesting stuff that exists in culture whether for you know whether sanctioned or not um that makes culture richer all of that sort of like rip offy knockoff stuff that we love there is a heart and a charm in some of it, like the Turkish Star Wars for movie, for example. Yeah. War in Space, that weird Japanese movie with the like Chewbacca knockoff with orange horns and a and a giant axe. Like all of that stuff doesn't exist without Star Wars. Like, you know, I feel like if we like went back in time and it was like that Amazon show where you like people are traveling back in time to fight the Nazis or whatever the other show is, like you go back in time before Star Wars and you make like George Lucas not make Star Wars and like think like, and then you come back to the present, like imagine how different culture is. Yeah. Unimaginable. on tap next episode it's great it's amazing you're gonna want to listen to it it's not right now though you're gonna have to wait till the next episode to listen to it oh when's that the next one cool toys on tap the next one's gonna be good too so stay tuned and and, and listen to that awesome